yeah, we back. This your boy, your local neighborhood DJ, DJ 360 in the place. And today we have the opportunity to sit down with a hip-hop legend. A legend on the turntables, a legend in the studio, production, and he's pretty good with his hands when it comes to the Technique 1200s. On the line we got legendary producer, DJ, DJ Mr. Mix in the house. What's up, Mix? What up, brother? What's going on? What's um, going on? Man, feeling good, man. Uh, let me just say, man, I appreciate you taking time out of your football Sunday, man, to sit down with 360 Entertainment. And, and do this interview, man. Yeah, I'm, try, I'm trying to do two things at one time. I'm trying to talk to you and trying to watch these games. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see the Eagles put up a hell of a game with that hell of a comeback they had, man. So, but yeah, um, today, you know, we just came off the interview with a couple other um, hip-hop artists. And, and this is one that I've been waiting to do because you're actually a producer who's been credited with, with creating... Something that we hear even to this day, or if we go to the club or to you know different types of parties around the country, you will hear a, 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 a snapshot of what you've actually put in stone as as being something that you've created. Um, for all of right. you, for all that don't remember, or all of you know, for the new cats, the new jacks that don't understand, just give give everyone out there an understanding of who you are, man. Yeah, well, um, when you uh, watch certain movies like um, Project X and you hear, hey, we want some, you know, you know, coochie and all of that, and you hear um, on another movie on Friday, you hear Hoochie Mama, and, you know, on um, Malibu's Most Wanted, when you hear Me So Horny, that's me. Even though I'm not a part of the situation that, you know, that made that stuff, but that is my work, period. That is what it is. So that's who I am. You can hear the music, you just can't see the face. I don't know who the face is, that's all. Wow, and for all of y'all that's listening, Me So Horny, Get It Girl, Throw That D, all of that came from this this man we have on the line from his production skills, DJ Mr. Mix. Um, so let's take it back. Let's hit the rewind button. Even before you were part of any groups or any type of um, music entertainment, what were you doing before that that, that kind of made you say, you know what, I have a future. I may be able to have a future in this music business. What prompted you to even go toward the music industry or even creating your first well, song? Well, what's funny about it is is that I never um, thought that I would um, be in the music industry. I was um, playing saxophone from um, third grade all the way through high school. But I never looked at it as an actual profession. I looked at it as it being a hobby, something that I wanted to do, something I was, I was emulating. Um, you guys can look up these names too. Grover Washington Jr. and Junior Walker and the All-Stars, they were, um, you know, hot saxophone players in the, you know, early um, 70s and all that. So I wanted to emulate or imitate those um, musicians. But I wasn't really thinking about being um, a professional. Mm -hmm. I knew that I was pretty good, but I didn't really think about making money with what it is that I knew how to do. Right. So at, at, being a saxophone player and then transitioning later on into being a producer, that kind of, would you say that kind of helped you with understanding how to play the notes and how to syncopate different sounds and make the music sound like it should based on the fact that you understood music and, and, and how can you, you know, what can you say to producers now who are producing music but they're not really using techniques of reading notes or understanding how to how, how to um, pitch the songs correctly. So how did that kind of play into to, uh, or, or connect to your production style? 
being a, being a saxophone well, instrumentalist? Mean, well, it connects from the fact of um, you're able to put um, chords together and different things by being in music. So you have, you know, you can have the versatility of instead of just being a hip hop producer, you can be, you know, an R&B producer because the theory of music, you know, you I, I knew that, you know, um, you know, the fringes of knowing it just by doing, you know, the stuff that I was in, you know, school with. I was able, to, you know, I'm able to, you know, figure all out, out all the notes and this and that. Whereas a young guy that's coming up now, he has a computer program and doesn't really have an understanding. He may know how to imitate what it is that he hears on the radio, but he wouldn't know a, a G note from an F note to an A note. He just wouldn't know what that is. And uh, it's not, you know, it's not required of him or her to know what that is. So they're very limited on what it is that they can do. And, you know, and, and they also treat their work like it's not really, um, you know, they, they'll, they'll do 10 beats for somebody for, um, for $600. So that's like $60 a beat. You right. know what I mean? Right. So, uh, you know, so hold on one second. Yeah, we on the line with legendary DJ Mr. Mix in full effect. 360 Entertainment. Yeah, yes, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. Okay. Yeah, so so like you said, man, you know, reading notes and being able to produce sound quality and, and, and ear-friendly music is very important. And if you if we stay in that same time frame, I would assume I would say between 1980 and 1985. What was what was uh uh, uh David Hobbs doing at that time that that you know, as as a young man with different ambitions, because um, right, you know, as of now, we have a, a lot of young men who are young, ambitious. It may not be an ambition to do music, but just in life in general. So, prior to anything dealing with music, I know you were, you know, you said you were in, um, you know, third grade and up playing the saxophone. But as of like a young man's age who was able to make a decision to do one thing or the other. Let's say 1980 to 85. What was what was David Hobbs doing before he was really uh, uh, attacked the world? I was um, I was um, finishing up high school and I really didn't know exactly what it is that I wanted to do for real, for real. But um, but it didn't have anything to do with um, a music career. Um, I ended up going into the military. I went into the Air Force and. Um, Right at the time that I went in, uh, did my basic training and went to my tech school. And then my first basic assignment was uh, England. So when I went over there, this is like uh, 80, uh, 82, 83. You know, I'm telling my age, but I, I'm not worried about that. Right. But at the same time, uh, they used to bring um, rap um, and breakdancing exhibitions from New York over to London. So I frequent London a lot. It wasn't that far away from the military um, base that I was stationed at. Mm -hmm. So um, this breakdancing group called the Rocksteady Crew and this other DJ that was that had an underground radio station in New York called Africa Islam, he came over with them as their DJ. Now, at that time, I had never seen a DJ do the scratch and you would hear stuff like on records. Um, uh, and this was before the uh, Herbie Hancock um, and DSP uh, record Rocket came out. Right. This was before that. So, you know, you would hear uh, you, you, the, the one record that stood out in people's ears 
was uh, Buffalo Gelders by Malcolm McLaren. But I didn't know how the scratching was being done because at that time, being overseas, you really didn't get the videos or any of that kind of stuff. So you didn't get the visual of what was actually happening, what was going on. Right. So when I actually seen Africa Islam do what it was that he was doing on the turntables, I equated it to a person like, you know, playing an instrument, like playing the guitar. One hand is doing one thing and the other hand is doing something else. So... Um, I dibbled and dabbled with uh, with guitar, like playing bass lines on the guitar and things like that. So I just equated, you know, as soon as I uh, was able to get enough money from off of my military paycheck, I went and got me two turntables and um, a little makeshift mixer and started practicing. So um, from, you know, like, but at the same time, from 80 to 85, I really didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I went into the service. I was actually uh, a pop locker back at that time. So, you know, all of that stuff intertwined into my production also because you had big records back at that time, like Rick James, Give It To Me Baby, and uh, uh, Shalimar records were big, and um, all of the disco-type sounding records were a gigantic thing. Fatback Band, a bunch of different groups, Cameo. So... All of that stuff kind of interfused into my production later because most of the stuff that um, I did, you know, when I was part of uh, that group um, was all dance-oriented type music. Right. So, and that's where the actual blueprint of my style of, you know, Miami-based, you know, um, that along with coupled with the record Planet Rock was all built around, you know, the blueprint of making that type of music. Right, and that, and that was what I was going to ask next is is the, the whole formula or the the foundation of, of a lot of your tracks, um, especially um, in the '80s or you know the mid to late '80s had and, and not only your music but I would even say artists like um, uh, Egyptian Lover and World Class Wrecking Crew and different artists like that who've had a, the, where that the foundation beat was was kind of an offshoot of Planet Rock. And, and which was you know a popular song at that time. Now, I talked to um, MC Shan and Tracy Lee, and they both said that their influence as far as being MCs was um, when they first heard uh, Melly Mel and they heard um, Rapper's Delight for the first time. That was like their first like you know where they got their love for hip hop. So would you say that your um, passion got started when you saw? Africa Islam over there in London is that where it all started for you or did you hear something else a little later that said oh yeah I can really do this I really want to do that well I will say the um, the record Planet Rock really changed my philosophy on uh, it, it was such a dynamic record at the time because it was electronic even though there had been some electronic records that had been done before that like uh, with the stuff that Kraftwerk was doing in the late um, 70s going into 1980, but the way that they did it, it um, uh, Trans Europe expressing things like that didn't necessarily sound funky, but Planet Rock did, and it, you know, it was like a, you know, it was a weird, it was a weird hybrid of um, different things, you know, it was dance music, it was electronic, uh, the beats were hard, so you had all of these different elements that sounded better than most of the stuff that had came out at that time. So it's, it's, it's like one of those things to where, um, you know, Planet Rock uh, really intrigued me. 
Um, as far as how it was made, I found out what kind of drum machine was used, which is a you know, rolling 808 that uh, most people don't really know. They think the 808 is just a boom sound, but it's an actual drum machine with a with um, you know, that's probably to this day 80% of the drums that's used on most of the records come from that drum machine. Mm-hmm. Most people don't even know it. Right. So, um, you know, and when I learned about the machine and learned how to program it and was able to program the Planet Rock beat right in front of myself, you know what I mean? It let me know that, well, if I could do this, that means that I could compete with, right. you know, with arranging tracks and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what holds people's ears and uh you know hip-hop out of new york was a big deal even though you had stuff that was um as i know like, like in 84 85 i got stationed back to the states in california you know uh, the egyptian lover la dream team wrecking crew all that stuff it was a california thing but it was still deemed as um less than than what was going on in new york so it was just you know some california stuff that was being done but back east they weren't stunting it right you know, maybe some of the stuff did well in the south and in the midwest but you know in the corner of the world you know new york pennsylvania new jersey dc all that it didn't make a difference it was you know it was non-relevant music right and and i heard you mention that you know you used to what you did was to create or the song planet rock was funky enough for you to kind of um, create your own lane and, and, and do something that is going to catch people's ear and with that I can say that I've noticed in your music or in your in the tracks that you've created um, you added an element that nobody else used at the time and that was including comedy records and 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 you know scratch samples of let's say you know maybe uh, uh, Moms Mabley or, or or Rudy Ray Moore Dolomite or Richard Pryor or something like that like it, can you kind of describe that process and, and how those kind of how that came about and, and how you would formulate the track in your mind and or or was it something that was just done on the spot or did you have to think about how to you know what you wanted to do for these tracks and and, and, and um, put these different types of samples in there as far as the comedy records are concerned well, well the thing was about at, at that time in the 80s you know those records were big but they were big in the hood like at you know your mom and dad's parties when um you know back at that time you know kids were not allowed to hang around where the adults were they were made to go to the back room but you know you always try to sneak out and try to hear what was happening up there in the front and you hear these you know richard Pryor albums and you know they're laughing and this and that and and a lot of them were risque and nasty and all that, so it was like kind of like forbidden stuff. But I would sneak the records from out of my dad's collection and bring them back to my room and listen to them. Mm-hmm. So I knew a lot of the crazy phrases and different things that was being said. So how you know, with most guys that was DJing and scratching, they wanted to do you know the hip hop stuff that they heard from out of New York. The the stuff is really fresh and all these different little sound stabs you know, and try to learn how to scratch those sound stabs good. I just took on the adage of um, using, you know, the phrases that these crazy com- comedians was doing on these joke albums and, um, you know, synchronize what they were saying to the beat of what it was that I was making. Right. So uh, That's pretty innovative. That, that that's, the, that's pretty innovative, I must and say. That, yeah, and, and that and the combination of me, you know, um, moving to Miami when um, 
all of the wild and crazy parties that would go on on the beach and, you know, the skin the wind contests and all that kind of stuff. You just had a, you know, a hot and ass natured atmosphere right. in Miami. So uh, the fast music along with these crazy comedy phrases that's being said to kind of egg on or amp up what was already happening in the market, it just took off. Right. And, and that that right there brings me to the transition that occurred, um, I would say, what, 86, 87, um, transitioning from California to Florida because, you know, the buzz was getting larger and people and, and, and the word spread around and you all were able to, um, uh, you know, capitalize on certain markets and, and, and the music takes off. So kind of describe, if you if you will, the, the, the transition from California to Miami, Florida, and then if there was what did it feel like a like an overnight success type thing or was it like okay we knew this was going to happen it's just a matter of time because i know the music was hot and it's just a matter of you know somebody hearing it and, and, and believing in us or was it you know something that was a, a tedious situation where it's like all right let's see if these guys are really serious how did that really take place from california to florida and and and, and kind of describe how that you know affected you and and, and the production of your material well, the thing is, is that, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for people that are internet savvy to take away all the internet aspects of, of um, life and figure how life was at that time. I mean, you know, for, you know, me growing up at the time that I grew up in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, I mean, you can relate to what was going on maybe in the 50s and 40s and this and that. It's just, you know, but... For a guy, for a kid that's, you know, that's living in 2013 with not having, being able to have a cell phone or being able to go on the internet or being able to play video games the way that they got right now, it's, it's like, you know, um, what happened with us could have been like 100 years ago. They just couldn't relate to how we would do, you know, how things could be done. Right. So, you know, the transition, you know, California was, you know, always an um, area where, you know, the Bloods and Crips was rampant, you know what I mean? It was a big deal. You know, anything outside of the Bloods and Crips, you know, um, California was just like a cool, laid-back place. But when um, I went to Florida, Florida was a little more high-strung because you got all these Caribbean people from different parts of the, uh, you know, the Caribbean that live in Miami, and all of them are mad at each other for one, you know, one reason or another, or it's just too hot to where it can't nobody keep the keep a cool head about anything so mm -hmm. you know the atmosphere was a little more aggressive um the women were definitely you know um uh, looking for the guy with the high top pay they didn't make no um you know it was no secret that that's what they was on and even the half-ass mud duck looking chicks you know <laughs> expecting to get money right you know right. not just you know the the starlets you know everybody was just you know um no pay no play you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it was kind of like a culture shock of, of how it was, but I was able to, you know, adjust and um, and um, and put something in front of them that amplified what they already were down there. It's just nobody was doing that. Right. You know what I mean? So you just happen to be the first ones, and then when you're the first one to do something, then, you know, you got a bunch of copycats and offshoots to try to cut into the lane of what it is that you made for yourself. But none of the um, companies would ever market or promote those groups. 
uh, beyond, uh, you know, Dade County or Brown County. Right. So we still always had room to be able to do stuff in different parts of the country. But that was mainly because of uh, the different record distributors in different parts of the country. They were the true hustlers. You know, they were basically, uh, you know, a distribution house in Florida. Uh, you know, if they wanted to try to get new product into the market, they would see what was going on in D.C. or New York or Los Angeles or Texas or whatever. And they would get the records from those markets and bring them to, uh, to the Florida market and see how well it would work. Along with, you know, distributors in other places would do the same thing. Right. So that's how the record kind of spread out a little bit. There was no such thing as, you know, rap promotion, street teams, or any of that back then. Street teams basically came from the fact that, I remember, um, you know, different people were called out to the office to say that they wanted to be involved with what it was that we were doing. You know, most of these people weren't promotion people, but they were word-of-mouth people in their areas. So they would call down, we'd send records out to them, you know, and uh, let them, you know, walk around with, you know, records or send them a jacket or send them some T-shirts. And um, they would run their mouth about the fact, hey, man, this guy, you know, this company sent me all this stuff here. You know, it's like I'm a representative of the company, even though they really wasn't. Right. So, and then, and then the other element was the crime element. You know, a lot of people don't really want to expound on this, but... You know, the guys that was, um, you know, the hustlers, the dope dealers out of Florida, most of them, if they didn't have a, a spot that they could hustle out of that was really booming in Miami, they went somewhere else to put their hustle game down. So they was taking our music with them when they were going to infiltrate, you know, Atlanta or, you know, places in Mississippi or South Carolina or North Carolina or... Right. Um, or Alabama. It, it, and, it really seems. I mean, not to cut you off, but you said Atlanta, and it seems like that that influence kind of stuck of the sound that was going on in Miami, and then when it came through Atlanta, it kind of stuck, and then a similar movement created, you know, from that the Atlanta-based sound, where right. where you had the emergence of um, you know MC Shy D and DJ Smurf, who is better known or more currently known as Mr. College Park, and and and, and uh, Raheem the Dream, and all those others. So. I can see how right. that influence kind of moved to the northeast of Florida. Excuse me, northwest of Florida into the Atlanta market and around the country. But um, but yeah, that that that's definitely um something that that's noticeable in the, in the in this hip hop game. So let me ask you this though: when you left, when 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 the transition came, I know that the the records blew up and money started coming around. Did the money, the notoriety, the places you were all able to travel? Um, the you know the videos and the interviews and all of this and, and doing shows and traveling with different artists who might have been as popular or at the time did that change early on? How did that change the view of being being you know the, the motivation and the work ethic to get into the studio and create that next hit? Or um, how did it uh, affect relationships and things of that nature when when that money started rolling in? Well, what happens is, is that, you know, people kind of forget how things started and people kind of lose themselves. You know, um, money is an amplifier. Whatever it is that you are, and when you get some money, it's going to amplify whatever it is that you are for real. Right. If you're a jerk, it's going to make you more of a jerk. If you're passive, it might make you more passive. 
you know, it, it just adds on to what it is that you are. And, um, you know, what happens is when, you know, when people get together, you know, it may be an opportunity for people to do some stuff, but you don't really think that everybody that's involved is an opportunist. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh-huh. you know, so what happens is when, you know, opportunists, you know, get thinking, you know, one thought too many, they start thinking about how they can do this for themselves and box everybody else out to where they can be the man for whatever it is that it is that they're trying to do as an individual. So people go to, you know, thinking differently and start trailing off. And, you know, it, it, it's one thing when you're, you know, when you're doing something that's an opportunity for guys that are working together with that never, that didn't grow up with each other. You know, you never really know what the left hand is doing from the right hand. Right. So it just came, you know, it just came to a, you know, a big, you know, situation that, you know, everybody had different thoughts of what it is that they really wanted to do. You know, all four of us were, you know, different individuals. You know, out, you know, the cohesiveness of what we came up with, you know, lets you know that, you know, people can come from different things and make something work. But how long do you want to do that versus doing your own thing? And that's what happened with that situation. Wow. You know, um, the money, you know, I don't think the money really changed anybody. You know, it just, um, you know, I think third-party people that be in your ear about what it is that they think that your contribution is to a situation can agitate them. Right. And, uh, you know, some people believe it. Some people, you know, um, expound on it. And um, sometimes you can't put the genie back in the bottle once he then got out. Right. Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and that's what happens. Right. So since you can't cry over spilled milk, you know, what it is is what it is after it's all done, after it's all said and done. Um, so my, my that leads me to ask you also, um, to that new artist who is able to have that because I've heard a lot of people say, you know, that one, all you need is that one song and it might propel you into another atmosphere, another, um, you know, uh, situation financially. If you had one thing that you can say to an artist who was on the, the brink of success and they're just so excited to sign the paperwork. And um, I was watching a movie yesterday by um, uh, a local artist named Zaytoven. He's a producer from the Bay Area, came out to Atlanta. He's doing some things with Gucci Mane, different artists. But the movie basically talked about how, you know, uh, his manager was trying to sign away his publishing just to get a, a feature from another established artist. So, yeah, I'll give you 50 percent of the publishing. Just hook me up with this artist. Um, so sometimes artists eyes can be bigger than their heart or, or they bite off more than they can chew without really understanding what's going on. So what would you say to someone who was in the position that you and, and the group or maybe you as a producer was in um, right when? You know, if you if you were able to look back and turn back the hands of time, if you would have done anything differently, like what would you tell an artist, say, you know, who was about to sign some paperwork but doesn't really have a full understanding? Like, what advice could you give them so that 20 years later, 25 years later, they're not saying I shoulda, coulda, woulda? Um, because there's well, a- the the thing is, you you really, you know, you can't really do anything more than just move forward of trying to. You know, if, if, a, if a situation is brought to you, you may not thoroughly understand it, but you're able to get yours right then and there. Nine and a half times out of ten, you're going to do it. And I would suggest people to do it because what ends up happening is, you know, sometimes you can know too much and you can knock yourself out of position to get anything. 
or to make anything happen. See, sometimes, you know, with, with you know, with our um, situation, you know, it's one thing, if you write your music, you know, or, or, or write your lyrics, you know, that's a part of you. If anything is successful, it's always going to show up, you know, as residuals down the road. Um, you know, there's, there's two sets of money. There's songwriting money and then there's publishing money. That's why most of the record companies, they would go after the publishing aspect of it. You know, you own your publishing from the very beginning, but the record companies don't allow you to think that you own your publishing. They feel like it's something that should just be granted to them, and it really isn't. Right. But what happens is it puts you in a position that the publishing company can control your compositions. Really, what, what publishing is supposed to be is that, you know, when you're short on money or whatever, you know, you're supposed to be able to sell off that piece of the action like pieces of stock. It's still your stock, but a person has to buy into your publishing, you know what I'm saying, or buy into your songwriting section of your publishing, you know, and that's what it's used for. So, you know, you got 100% songwriting, 100% publishing for whatever um, piece of the pie that you bring to uh, a song situation. So they, everybody knows that the publishing part can be negotiated, but the songwriter side is, is a side that, you know, that's non-negotiable. That's just something that just goes to you. So like right now, I still receive residuals on songs that I did, even though the publishing as part of it got swindled. Mm -hmm. You know, and I say swindled because they knew what the worth was and they knew that we didn't know what the worth of it was. So, yeah, so right now, like if, if, a, uh, if a rapper is put in the same kind of position, if he says, okay, well, I don't want to give you my publishing, then that might cut the, you know, that might blow the whole deal. So you're put, put between a rock and a hard place, and if you don't know enough people that have been through that, you know, to know what the pros and cons are going to be, you're just going to roll with what's going to try to make something happen right at the moment. You know what I mean? So it's, 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 it's a hard decision because most of the time, if you don't give it up, the doors are going to get closed to whatever that situation is at that particular moment. In time. Now, now, and, uh -huh. you know, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the doors will get closed on you, so you have to take the opportunity. You just have to feel like the opportunity is is worth doing that at the moment. You right. have to feel like it's worth doing. Now, would you say that uh, it's it's even important enough to someone to do that? Like, record deals nowadays are, are not as much a priority as... Well, it seems like that getting a record deal is not as much of a priority to an artist as it is getting their music online or, you know, uploaded to the latest media, social media or YouTube or whatever the case is. Because everybody can get on. If you have a computer, you got Fruity Loops, you can produce your own track, you can upload it. Now, they may not even feel like it's necessary to, to even approach a record label and sign a contract unless they have a track that's... I guess hot enough to you know generate a buzz, and then the record companies or the labels can come looking for them. So do you do you feel like I mean, there do you feel like there's a, a I would say a, a a decline in the hustle in comparison to how much work was put in, or is it easier now than it was before to get heard and you know before uh, you know it's harder now. It's, it's harder, harder now. now to get heard. It's like uh, you know being a being in a room, 
with uh, that used to be maybe only 100 people in the room. You might have a chance to get heard, but now it's 10 million people in the same room. <laughs> so, wow. you know, you have a harder time to get heard, even though be, you know, to even know that you even exist. Right. So, and and the and the biggest thing that record companies can come with right now is the promotion. You know, um, if, if they're able, you know, if they want to do something with you, just the fact that you being able to be promoted surpasses all the people. That you know, that's online. They can't get nobody to pay them attention, even though that stuff is posted and available. The, today's consumer doesn't look for new stuff. They have to be tapped on the shoulder about it. Right. You know. You know. So that that part of it is the big issue. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, most of these young rappers and singers, you know, male or female. If you're not in a uh, college atmosphere or a high school atmosphere doing what it is you're doing, it's going to be hard to get people to follow or pay attention to you because it's a rapper on every um, on every page. You know, you know, you could go to Reverb Nation and see there's probably 10 million rappers on there. Right. You know what I mean? So there's no need to really go searching. You know, for you know, people are just not built to search nowadays. You know, in my in my era, you know, um, people were inquisitive. People wanted to, you know, dig in the crates and find different records that nobody else had, or this and the other. But that was just the nature of how people were at that time. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you know, everything is laid out for people to where they don't have to look for nothing. They're automatically being entertained to where they don't have to quest for this or quest for that. Right. Right. Now, now there's a you know over the last ten years, fifteen years, I would say that there have been some artists that stuck out, and maybe have been that one in that room of ten million that stuck out and stood out. I would say artists like Fifty Cent or Eminem, Drake, um, 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 Kendrick Lamar, even you know who who stood out. As a matter of fact, when I speak of Kendrick Lamar, he has a popular song called Swimming Pools. And as much as I love your old school music, I love your old school classics, the 808s, the hi-hats, the snares and everything, you've also, um, you know, taken your talent to another level and, and kind of remixing songs that are popular now. And um, uh, I got a track, man, you know, the remix was for the song Swimming Pools by, by Kendrick Lamar. Um, and I'm going to play that actually um, after you kind of set it up. Like, give us an, uh, an idea of, of the thought process and, the, you know, the creativity that went into remixing um, swimming pools to make it, you know, put your stamp on it. And we'll go right into that. Well, the thing is, is that, um, you know, um, the, the, the getting drunk and over, um, you know, over the, um, over the limit, that's kind of new with black folks as a whole. You know what I mean? With white guys and white parties and, uh, you know, those, um, you know, the keg parties and things like that. Those guys have always gotten drunk off their ass and doing, you know, all kind of wild and crazy stuff. You know, it's just barely starting to get in with black folks as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I wanted to do was um, take a, um, a sample of a record that was a gigantic um, uh, rock song back in the days. And, um, you know, blend the two things of what, you know, Kendrick Lamar is doing along with, you know, a a white boy version of one of the wildest records that was um, that was actually out in the late 60s. It was a gigantic record called um, 
like my fire by the doors. Uh-huh. So I wanted to take the element of a wild and crazy party atmosphere that the white guys would do on a regular basis and, and put a little funk situation to it. Because there's a lot of white fans of um, hip-hop music. Matter of fact, hip-hop wouldn't even survive if uh, whites didn't indulge in it because they're the ones that buy. A lot of blacks listen, but they don't purchase. Wow. You know, and, you know wow. and I'm not saying that whites are the only ones that make purchases. It's just more of them in the United States than it is blacks. Right. You know, just just so, so people can have an understanding. You know, there's a lot of, you know, of our people, a lot of black folks that don't really understand that. We only make up 12% of this country, you know, but we make up probably about 80% of the of the flavor and the sayings and different things that people latch on to. Right. So we don't even have an understanding of what our worth is in a global market for the most part. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, you know, the stuff that we kind of take for granted, you know, people are taking to China and, and this, that, and the other and getting paid off of our swagger. So, you know, it's... It, it, you have to have an understanding that, you know, there's a lot of things that makes the world work. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's good that the Internet and all that stuff is in place and you can kind of be the you know, master of your destiny. But you have to be able to have the know-how or the know-how to bring people to you to, you know, to pay you attention and try to take that attention and build on it. Because right now, like I said, it's 10 million rappers out here. What are you going to do? more than the next man or what can you do to bring somebody to you you know to uh, to let it be known that you are a good rapper so i kind of feel sorry for the people that's that's coming out to, uh, nowadays because they don't really have a way to be able to do it and even if you go to a showcase or this that and other you're getting charged fifty dollars a hundred dollars to be on stage for 10 minutes who got that kind of money to be doing that to go all over the place to do that? Right. Not right. too many. Maybe some maybe some dope boys do, so that's why maybe the music ain't so good, because you got dope boys that's doing the stuff that got the money to, to showcase, but they don't got the talent. So, you know, um, you know, they might become popular just because they got a couple of dollars. Not because they're really um great at doing something. So it, it, you know, it's almost kind of lightweight in the state of emergency. Right, right. And with that being said, with the talent that's necessary and the emergency, you know, nature of um, what's going on in hip hop right now, it's good that we have songs like um, uh, Swimming Pools that can be touched and remixed by a legend in the, you know, in this game and, 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 and um, you know, give others an inspiration, you know. So what we're going to do right now with all that Mr. Mix just told us is go into that track that we've been talking about called Swimming Pools, the DJ, Tretch DJ, Mr. Mix remix. Looking to make a vow soon that I'ma get fucked up 
filling up my cup, I see the crowd move Changing by the minute, and the record will repeat Took a sip, then another sip, then somebody said to me Nigga, why you can't be sitting, only two or three shots I'ma show you how to turn it up a notch First you get a swim, a full of liquor, then you dive in We're back. DJ 360 in the house. I'm in the building one more time with the legendary DJ, DJ Mr. Mix. You still with us, DJ Mr. Mix? Yes, yes. I still go by DJ Mr. Mix, stretch DJ Mr. Mix. And then I got this new situation that I'm, um, you know, that I'm involved with, a situation called Beats by Mix. And uh, it's just a hybrid of stuff that I did in the past, things that I'm doing with new and up-and-coming producers and rappers and things like that. You know, it's just a, you know, a newfangled way for young people to pay attention to something instead of them thinking that, you know, it's this old school guy that still wants to, you know, um, put his weight of what it is that he feels people should be doing. You know, I, I you know, I, I talk with a lot of young people you know, their eyes open up real big once I show them certain things from what it is that I come from. You know, it kind of lets them know that, you know, you may think you're in high school, but you're really still in kindergarten. You right. know what I mean? And, right. you know, but, you know, but it's okay because, you know, kindergartners become high schoolers and then become college grads. But, you know, maybe, you know, um, it's, it's kind of funny you look at the school system you're made to be in the school system. You know, if it's on you, you may not ever want to learn past kindergarten or third grade if it was up to you. Because if you're not forced to learn something, most of the time you ain't gonna learn nothing. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. Or even take the time out to learn it. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know. And life is a learning it's experience. Always, 
Huh? I say life is a learning experience, not only just the entertainment, but when you go through life and you learn and you can be, you know, um, an entertainer, lawyer, whatever it is, but you're going to learn something every day that's going to lead you towards your future. And, and with that being said, um, you've had your share of um, in, in the groups that you were a part of, um, the group that you were a part of had, um, you know, a, their share of um, controversial uh a controversial period how did that affect you personally like having to go through um certain legal things and um you know people saying this and that about the situation in, in the group or your your music like because there was a there was kind of a uh a risque like you, the term you used earlier um you know aura about the the, the songs that you've produced so how did how does the the controversy how did that era affect you personally and, and your approach to the music? Did it change your mind in any way, or did it help fuel your fire to be motivated to continue? Well, the thing was is that we always felt like um, the people that we were sampling, um, you know, either music or the comedy bits from were way bigger than us. Turns out that um, a lot of these records, these com black comedy records, were just known in the black neighborhoods. They didn't. They weren't really known about in white society to the degree that you know our stuff was being put out there. Most of these comedy albums didn't sell, you know, a million records or anything like that. But they were so so volatile of a strong thing in in the black neighborhoods. They might as well have been gold and platinum projects. Mm -hmm. So we just really didn't understand why people was reacting the way that they reacted. But we just really just found out that the world is way bigger than what we really realized. And, you know, um, people take a certain stance on particular things. You know, you never really know where people are at until something is done. Then they'll speak on it. You know what I mean? It's just like with, with the president. There's a lot of people in America that don't like the fact that there's an African-American in the White House. They don't really get how that even happened. You know what I mean? And it just goes to show you that, you know, more, there's more people of color or more people that's in a minority sense of, you know, of the atmosphere that will, you know, that has more in common with the president that's the president of the United States right now than they would any other candidate. You know, um, if you really look at it, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, it seems like to me that, you know, you got... Um, uh, more um, people that are, you know, that are white that will pay attention to a Republican more so because he's rich, not because he's for the right thing. Right. And um, and you can see that in a lot of the different areas where there's so-called red states, and in the blue, the blue states are mostly northern. Um, you know, where it's diversified thinking, and you got all different types of races of people. And then you know what even throws it off even more is the race mixing <laughs> so that that changes the whole you know situation of how things go so basically what ended up happening with the controversy with uh what was going on back at that time is that you know you had rich people that didn't have a real understanding of what you know their little kids was you know uh getting a hold of <laughs> so it, be, it was more of a you know they tried to make it seem like it was a um uh, a sexual slash um, um, 
disbandment of music when it was really more of a, you know, we don't want our um, young kids listening to this type of stuff that these four young black guys out of the hood that's under 30 years old that's being highly influential. They just couldn't really just say it like that. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's what it really was. You know what I mean? And right now, you know, it's, you know, um, what our group was back then, you know, you got people like 2 Chains and Lil Wayne and all that taking our formula and running with it. The only difference is they got big, um, you know, big white conglomerates backing them on this stuff and taking the thing and running with it all the way to the bank. <laughs> That's right. the biggest difference. Right. Now, that 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 era of time, you know, and me being a kid, and I can really attest to what you're saying as far as, um, you know, our kids getting hold of. My parents were not really, you know, my, my dad would be the one who would listen to the, the Temptations and, you know, the Four Tops and Earth, Wind & Fire and all those groups. And he really got me to the point where I really, really wanted to listen to break beats and figure these out because he used to play these songs at two or three in the morning and say, listen to this part right here. And I'd focus on the part where the, all the, where the, where the, where the bass line drops out and we just have the, the drums and whatnot. So when songs like the ones you produce and other artists have put out, I would always, like you said, when you used to sneak the, the record from your dad's room and, or, or your, the, his record collection and listen to him in your room, I would do that same thing with your tapes. You know what I'm saying? And I would get in trouble at school or whatever because they found out who it was. They saw the covers of the CDs or the, or the tape covers and I'd, you know, get a day, you know, in school suspension or something like that because they really didn't, all they saw, like you said, was the, the sexual aspect of it as opposed to saying, okay, maybe there are some young black entrepreneurs here who are putting their talent and giving their talent to the world. You know, they probably didn't look at it like that. So it's unfortunate, right. but it, it seems like it was a double-edged sword at the time because it kind of benefited because controversy sells. and at, But at the same time, it could also hurt you because people start to, you know, the, the picket signs and, the, you know, the banning and all of that happens. And, you know, and it, from what I understand, um, you and your group were the first to really do a clean and dirty version of the actual songs or the albums. Um, to give to the public, right? So, but it, it was it wasn't it wasn't something that we just came up with. It was something that had to be done because the first project that was put out, we didn't want to make it seem like it was an adults-only album because it really wasn't. You know, what I mean, the lines had never really been crossed before. The only time that you really had to do adults-only is with what the comedians were doing uh-huh. because the stuff that you know, the, what they were saying on the record, you know, you wouldn't hear that on the radio, you know, or any of that kind of stuff. So, you know, it was letting it be known that that's what, what kind of situation it was, straight up. But our situation necessarily wasn't was all that. Right. You know, I mean, you'd have some records that had, you know, lyrics, and then you know, you had some that didn't have any at all. Maybe you know, every song in the world, most of them will have, you know, sexual innuendos, double meanings, this, that, and the other. You know what I mean? So a lot of the record companies was able to get away with some of the stuff. Right. You know, but you know, but when our thing came out in the, you know, 14-year-old kid um, had his mom buy the album and then once he found out what was on there, that's what changed everything. So what we ended up having to do was make a... Um, a sanitized version of what it is that we made just to be able to get in certain stores. 
Okay. You know, certain stores wouldn't take the um, explicit version of the album, but they would take the cleaned up version of the album. Right. But it was, you know, but the, um, the, the dirties are still with the clean, like eight to one, nine to one. Right. Because curiosity is is aroused, if I may quote, you know, one of the, you know, sayings from a, from one of the songs on um. One of your, one of the albums, the curiosity is peaked when when people start to say no. Even in life, if you say I can't do something, if you say that that over there is hot, I want to go touch it and see if it's hot for myself. You know what I'm saying? If if they're saying that this is you know some some good music but it's dirty, I might I might want to go check it out just to see what it's all about. You know what I'm saying? And um, right around the time when even even um after the 90s hit or the late 80s and NWA and, and there was a lot of controversy with that with the so-called with the gangster rap and, and you know C. Dolores Tucker and Tupac even you know at that time when you're looking at the hip-hop game and and how things have went did you draw any parallels or any connections to what some of the other artists were going through and say yo I already know what he's going through so if you could look at a Tupac or even a Dr. Dre or uh, or Ice Cube or something at that time who was also going through um, the controversial period now, the, with the, big, the, the, the biggest difference between you know the Tupac NWA stuff and the stuff that we was doing um Dolores Tucker now was really trying to put a spin on it like um, this is not a representation of us as black people. Okay. I don't think that, you know, with, with the stuff with us, you know, it, it had to do with, you know, the sexual overtones. They wouldn't care if we were black, white, blue, whatever. Right. It didn't matter. We just happened to be black. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But with, with those guys, it was like, um, this is the unruly, you know, underbelly of black folks or black life. Okay. And they didn't want, you know, um, people that are getting a lot of money, you know, to change the value set of what people fought so long to, um, to bring up. You know what I mean? Right. So, I think that that was, you know, their situation was a little different. Right, right. You know, when it came to that. You know what I'm saying? They, yeah. they caught more flack of being, you know, black representatives in a bad, you know, in a bad manner. And it's still going on to this very day because, you know, um, you know, you could look at Lil Wayne as a millionaire, but what does he represent? He, he represents the worst of the worst, you know, or the worst of the worst thought process of cats in the street that, you know, look down on a woman or if you ain't light skin and got cocoa butter skin and this and that, you're nothing. And, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? All of those different things, you know, you're putting your personal spin and philosophy on a situation that is not really being asked for. Right. For real, for real. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was so, at, uh-huh. I, I was at, I, yeah. I was actually watching the, you know, the Floyd Mayweather fight last night and I was saying to myself, Lil Wayne is in the crowd, and um, and he was in the fourth row. With all, it seemed like it seemed like the white constituents, the white bureaucrat population, had the first four rows, and he's back there. And we look at Lil Wayne and other artists who have these, this big money. Not, and I'm not knocking Lil Wayne in any way, but he's of course a multimillionaire and part of a, a conglomerate of artists who generated a lot of money from entertainment and movies and fashion or whatever but he was still on the fourth or fifth row back and he's peeking through trying to see the fight still so 
So it's it's like no matter what we do from the con you know the controversial part of music, when people say that things should happen or shouldn't, it's like there's still a, a um, African Americans are still under the thumb of some type of you know overhead that says you 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 might have a couple dollars but you belong right here. It's like they're able to still put you where they want you to be as opposed to where you feel like you should be. Yeah, well, that 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 puts you know that that's a whole nother thing that goes on in America as, as a whole. It's like uh, you know a lot of you know black folks is in between the rock and the hard place. It's like you know yeah you have the right to be here, but we're not gonna make it easy for you to do what it is that you want to do in a place that we consider our country. You know, it's like we gave you, you know, we got, we brought you from a situation, you know, put you in a situation, you know, when, uh, you know, when slavery and all that stuff was over with, we didn't really know what to do with you. So it took a hundred years for them to figure out at the end of the day what they was going to do with us. Now they done figured it out. Now you have to either play your role or you're going to, you know, cause, you know, you're going to have problems. Right. You know what I mean? Whether you know whether you self-inflict yourself with problems, or we gonna just be on you, you know what I mean? And you know, um, you know, yeah, Toby Keith might be a um, you know a, a dust kicker and this and that, you know, whatever it is that he may do, you know, may not get amplified by his own people because they're not gonna throw their own people under the bus for the most part. Right. But if right. you're two chains and you got my young. Um, kid thinking this or that or whatever, it don't matter what race the kid is, you're, you're looked at more as a problem than someone that might have a good heart and use their money to do different things for causes and stuff that people don't really know so much about. But I kind of fault, you know, the two changes of the world of not letting that be known also. And them not necessarily using their celebrity <clears throat> for good stuff versus, you know, trying to make it seem like okay yeah I'm Pookie I'm Pookie and Ray Ray times 10 nobody wants to really you know um, you know black society as a whole don't want to deal with Pookie and Ray Ray times 10 they don't want to deal with that you know what I mean so what makes you think the other ones don't want to deal with that right right so you know you know but the thing is is that you know at the end of the day it's always going to be a Pookie and a Ray Ray you know, and um, there's always going to be some kind of conglomerate that, you know, is able to take that situation and run with it three or four or five years until the next one comes along. And then, you know, two change four years from now, well, you know, won't even, you know, won't even know, you won't even know that he even existed. Wow, that's unfortunate, man, because I've even heard someone say that 50 years from now, the greatest rapper that ever lived is probably going to end up being Britney Spears. That's probably what they're going to say. I've heard that a couple times, either that or Eminem, which will kind of negate everything that's been laid down, the foundation, and, and you know, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's there is a reality there that we have the opportunity to change, um, you know, going into the future. Yeah, but, you know, but you can't, I mean, you can't make a kindergartner out to be a college grad, period, and, that, and that's the problem. They don't want you to be a college grad. They want you to be a kindergartner and stay a kindergartner. So you, you'll never be able to, you know, if a kindergartner is constantly dealing with college grads that always know more than him, he'll, he may learn something, but he can't, you know, 
attack the fact that he's learned something because the people that you know that you're learning from is never going to allow you to get to the front of the class and to be you know influential in that way. It's mm. never going to happen. Wow. The only way that it will happen is if people are ready to take control of their own destinies of uh, you know what they want to do in life. Like let's let's just say for instance, you know, hypothetically. If Oprah and Magic Johnson and um, Bob Johnson, that you know, ex-owner of um, BET, wanted to set up a situation to where, in order for you to get our black talent, you got to come through the pecking order of us. Just think how how that would change everything. Mm-hmm. All the athletes, all of the um, recording artists, different people like that. You just can't come in here and just pick what you want to pick and this and that. You got to pay for it the same way as like. With the NFL and um, and the networks with TV, they just can't put the games on TV. You know what I mean? Some kind of negotiation process got to go. We got something that you want, and you got something that we want. Let's figure it out. You ain't gonna just get you know just your run of the thing and just go in there and go get what you get and and run down the street with it. So until people start really looking at themselves as being a a, a product. Or, you know, putting themselves in a position to where, you know, you can get more bang for your buck instead of dealing with this one or that one. And you feel like, you know, you know, man, I know that, I, you know, there's 10,000 rappers out here that could do the same thing I could do. But this one guy wants to invest in me and I can, you know, steal money from out of the, um, you know, out of uh, out of the system and get paid and, you know, make 20 million a year. Yeah, but at the same time, I'm making 20 million a year, but I'm still answering to somebody. Right, right, and that that that's and, can be, and uh, can't be cut off from the the next twenty million if I if this person don't feel like I'm gonna get some act right with them. Wow, and y'all heard it here. You hearing it? You hearing it from the from from the OG's mouth, from the legend's mouth. You know what I'm saying? And right now we in here turned up with DJ Mr. Mix. As a matter of fact, the song that I want to go into is called Turn Up uh, that you produced. Um, can you kind of, you know, talk about uh, any feet, any artists that are on the song and, and the creative process that went into that? And we'll go right into the song, Turn Up. Yeah, well, um, you know, the, the group, you know, there's some, you know, young guys out of uh, Cleveland, L-O-T-T, um, Life of the Party, you know, some guys that um, I got introduced to. And um, I just took their youngness and put it with my um, veteranism of how to put stuff together and, you know, doing stuff with what, you know, the new sound of, you know, what people feel is the thing now and putting it together and, and making something happen with it. You know what I mean? It's, you know, it, it, it's a perfect example that younger guys and older guys can work together if they respect each other's atmospheres of what they come from. Right. That's it. Okay. Check it out. That's right. Cool. So we go from Get It Girl to Turn Up. Same producer, different era. Same classic nature. Check it out. Turn up by DJ Mr. Mix and LOTP. Beats, beats by Mix. Turn up! Kissing, I turn up till I burn out. Lame, get turned down. Like T.I. 
DJ 360 and the Tretch DJ Mr. Mix on the line. I gotta ask, man, you know, back in the days we had a lot of DJs whose names came before the MC or the rapper that they were affiliated with. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Eric B and Rakim. That showed that uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. So it showed that the DJ was a prominent force in the hip hop game. Over the years, it seems like, in my opinion, that the DJ's role has been dwindled down to almost non-existent in a sense. And then with the uh, the presentation of, of virtual DJ, Serato, um, and even the video game, you know, um, that, that came out for the Xbox and, and all these other play, uh, uh, play video game consoles, it's like there's been a reemergence of interest in being a DJ or trying to be a DJ. So how, explain the, the, the role of the DJ now, if you can, like... In 2013, what is the role of the DJ and kind of compare it to what the historic role of the DJ was and how much relevance is really surrounding the DJ as of today? The DJ of today is nothing wow. compared to what they were when uh, when I was coming up because the DJ was uh, world-renowned as, you know, girl want to go to the DJ booth to see if the DJ will play their song and try to flirt with them and this and that. He held a particular power of the club. And, you know, and even to the club owners of these clubs, they knew that if you had hot DJ that people wanted to come party with, you know, and you had a disagreement with that DJ and the DJ go to, you know, do the stuff across the street with some other people, the clientele might leave their club and come to the club that he's at. So, you know, back in those days, and then also when it came to the, you know, to the rapper stuff, whether it's like Jazzy Jeff from the Fresh Prince or Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, they knew that the DJ was the epic center of that situation. The rappers were secondary. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, the rappers were in the hoping and wishing and praying 
that they could get, you know, a little mention on the mic or actually get on the mic and say something because it wasn't necessary for them to get on the mic because all of the hot songs and records that were being played was being played by the DJ that's controlling the set. Right. You know what I mean? And and most of the time, most of the DJs had some kind of musical influence to them and this and that other, like Jam Master J. I don't know if he played an instrument or anything like that, but he was very instrumental in how, you know, a lot of the musical aspects of what they did as a group went into play. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, but what happened is, is that once the rappers start becoming popular, it became a role reversal for the guys that ran the record company. They figured that, you know, it's hard enough to get people to pay attention to a rapper. Once we can get somebody to pay attention to the rapper, we can build and put everything else around him to make him be the focal point. And anybody, you know, can, you know, um, anybody could, you know, fill in the other points to, you know, points of situation. But most of the rappers were not really musicians. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just guys that knew how to run their mouth good and, and could put words and rhymes together. They had rhythm, but they don't, wasn't necessarily music guys. They didn't know this or that or whatever to you know, be able to say to someone, say, hey, look, man, I like this one um, sound or I like this one song or whatever. You know, build me a beat around this. Right. But they couldn't tell you how to build the beat. They were, you know, they was held at your mercy. Whereas... Most of the time with most DJs, they have an understanding of how they want the record to go, and they'll dictate, you know, how the session is going to go with, with how the rapper needs to do what he needs to do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, once, you know, and seeing, but the, but the biggest issue and the biggest problem came is that, you know, when, you know, the sampling of records became a, an expensive issue, they figure, well, what good is the DJ? He's not coming up with no original music. He's just using something that was hot at one time and revamping it. But it's costing us a gang of money to get, you know, the sample clearance and this and that other. So what good is he? So they started investing into the rapper and start dealing with musicians that can make music sound a particular or certain way. And that's how, you know, a guy like a... a LL or a Ludacris or or Outkast or Slick Rick or uh, any of these other people, they became bigger than the whole situation. And then and then the crazy part about it, you know, I'll put Jay Z and Ti in the mix also. So when guys like you know Timberland show up or Pharrell with the Neptune show up, this and the other, you know, it got so bad that you know. When you hear a, a Jay-Z record knowing good that well, Just Blaze did the beat. Just Blaze don't get no credit when the record is just running. It's just, you know, that's, that's the new Jay-Z song. It ain't mm. uh, Jay-Z and Just Blaze. Right. You know, Jay, you know what I'm saying? Just Blaze gets put to the side, you know, as far as, uh, you know, it, but it's 50% of his music or what it is that's making this record be something. It's really like a collaboration between the rapper and the and the musician. But um, it's become such a thing to where, you know, the musicians are playing second fiddle to the rapper. And the rapper ain't a damn even a damn musician most of the time. They're taking advantage of how good that person puts their music together. You know, and the same thing with T.I. You ain't thinking about who made the song. That's T.I.'s fault. Right, right. 
so so uh huh so as of recently the dj like you said the dj's role is not even if he's a producer has dwindled down to not very much in comparison to the artist or the mc who happens to be on that song and i remember talking to you about the time when i i was watching the jay-z concert and they had just blaze behind this big like wall or curtain he was scratching and doing some things but it was he was not a focal point on the stage and it was like wow so the people who are watching is like, where is this sound coming from? Or they may not have been thinking about that. They might have just been, you know, focusing on Jay-Z or whoever was on stage with him. And this sound was just, you know, what it was. It might have been, you know, they might have thought that it was something that was coming off of a pre-recorded tape or something like that. But their concentration was not right. on the DJ. And it was just unfortunate to right. see a good producer or a good uh, um, DJ like Just Blaze to be behind a partition where you couldn't even see him. So in my mind, I said, you know what? It has changed as from a fan's perspective, looking from the outside in, I can see that it has changed a lot. Um, <clears throat> but moving into the last question, man, um, I want to ask you, there, uh, there's one question I asked um, a couple other artists um, in their interviews. And, you know, just something that I, I'd like to, you know, get get some insight on. If you can create one like a, a, a flashback concert with hip hop artists that have um, meant a lot to, you know, the game or, or that you really look, looked at as being some good artists. If you could name about five artists that you would like to see on the bill and then who would close the show, who would headline the show? Um, if you, if you could create or put together a flashback hip hop tour. Um, I would say, uh, I would, I would like to do a, uh, I think a evolution, a rap evolution tour would be great. You know, take it from where where it was at to what it has become. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, um, have uh, Grandmaster Flash and Sugar Hill Gang. You know, in, in one sector of it. Then maybe you know have uh, you know a group like ours or, or Public Enemy and N.W.A. and uh, Rob Bass. To fill in the the next era, mm-hmm. and then you know, um, uh, then the era after that have maybe um, uh, Ludacris uh, and Outkast, and um, you know, uh, a couple other groups from their era, and then you know, to the latest, you know, whether it's um, you know, Young Jeezy or or Ti or, or whoever, you know, it'd be like a like a uh, four-tiered um, concert and the people would only do you know <clears throat> a 15-minute set of their hottest thing and then they get their ass off the stage <laughs> so it'll just be you know um, uh, you know like a multiple um, multiple orgasms basically <laughs> yeah so they're long enough to do your thing and get on right. long enough to do your thing and get on yeah it'll be like five hours worth of that Right. Where the, the audience would not get, you know, tired or bored or any of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? You do your best stuff and get on. Wow. <laughs> the multiple orgasm tour. <laughs> 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 yeah. Now, if anything comes with that, you'd you have heard it all on, on this radio show first. You heard it right That's here. That's my thing. 360 Entertainment. Give credit to Mr. Mix. If you hear about the or- multiple orgasm tour, you heard it first right here. So, um, how can people get in contact with you? Um, you know, uh, uh, 
social media. Shout that out. So if, if anybody yeah, needs social media, social media, they can reach me on Twitter. I am Beats by Mix. They can reach me that way. Um, if you want to um, send uh, music tracks to, um, you know, or um, send vocals for me to check out, and, you know, you want me to remix your stuff, whatever, and then, you know, shoot me an email, mix808king at yahoo.com. Uh, you know, and that's uh, that's pretty much it, you know. Um, you know, if you got if, if you got it, you know, uh, we can make it happen. You got some bread and you want to make something happen, you know, quick turnaround, 72 hours, we can do that. You know what I mean? It's uh, <laughs> it's all on the person that wants to make it happen. And how, how um, you know, driven are you to make something happen? The availability is there. Check my resume, DJ Mr. Mix. I'm all over Google. Google him, YouTube him, Yahoo, search him. The legend. We had an opportunity, and not many people have the opportunity to sit down with a legend. And I can say that I appreciate the opportunity to do that. So um, shout out to DJ Mr. Mix. Um, one love to everybody who's listening. Uh, this is 360, DJ 360 right here on 360 Entertainment. Look out for the highly anticipated documentary, which will be called Hip Hop 360. The birth, the growth, the controversy, the future, and the life of America's most misunderstood culture. That's right. The culture we call hip-hop. And we have an icon in the house. So thank you, DJ Mr. Mix. We'll be in contact with you. Peace. 360 Entertainment. Yow.